Welcome to our second installment of the Change Leader Podcast. If you're just tuning into this podcast, this series highlights prominent change leaders who understand the inner workings of transformation. If you missed our first episode with Dr. Mary Kay Bond, please go back and take a listen. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's guest, James Lakes IV. Mr. Lakes, welcome to the Change Leader Podcast. Thank you, Moshi, and I'm honored to be here. Awesome. Can you tell me a little about your professional background and how you got to your current role? So, you know, following college, I had an absolutely phenomenal journey. I played professional basketball for about eight years in Europe, primarily up in the Scandinavia region. Wanted to get my master's degree at the University of Copenhagen. And similar to you, I started doing some, some management consulting for some small boutique shops in the area. And that went really, really well. Then I got the technology bug and wound up on a couple of projects, and, and I got on Microsoft's radar. And over a two-year period, through some different dialogue and recruitment activities, I decided to accept a job with Microsoft and move from Copenhagen back to the United States after being, you know, living in Europe for almost 12 years at that point. And after that, I spent 15 years at Microsoft, you know, really diverse, you know, experiences from sales to strategy to operations, both on the commercial side of the business as well as the healthcare industry side of the business. And it was just a phenomenal ride. I've, I've learned a lot, met some great people, watched an incredible organization evolve multiple times over that 15-year period, which then led me to join VMware about 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. I lead the healthcare sales and strategy team across the Southeast. So that's the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Tennessee. And as you wow. know, I live here in the Nashville area here in Tennessee. Yeah. Um, and that's going really well. Um, the organization is really investing in trying to, you know, improve our brand, improve our product to be more valuable to health providers around the country and the world for that matter. That's awesome. That's a fantastic journey. What do you think sports and business have in common? You know, I, I talk a lot about the transition from being a, a sports athlete to a corporate athlete. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is around the ability to plan, to make sacrifices, to be mindful of the goal you're trying to accomplish. And then embracing the process that helps you get there. Along that journey, you should, you have skill sets that you have that you can contribute to that journey, but you also try to develop or capture new skill sets that enable you to be even more effective in that journey. And that's something that, you know, sports and, and business have to like. Like I, I'll use a, an analogy. We all know there's some great three point shooters out there, like mm-hmm. Steph Curry, for example. Yep. However, what they give unique, it compares to the, all the other great shooters were, is Barton. Most of the great shooters of the past were catch and shoot guys, right? Mm. They would come off screens, catch movement, somebody kicked out to, they catch and shoot the basketball, they were great at it. He's been able to do that, shoot at a high rate while dribbling the basketball himself, mm. attacking and creating space. So if you think about it, if you're a three point shooter and you got a great shot, if you didn't augment that skill set with great augmenting, then now you can create more space and get even more shots and be more effective. Mm. It's the same thing in business. Whether we are joining a new team, a new organization, or even a new project, you bring certain skill sets to the table. But if you enhance your skill sets, improve them, or even pick up some others, you can bring more value to that organization, to that role, to that team. And I think those two things are, are similar between business and athletics. Hmm. Wow. So, so just to clarify, you're looking at business through this sports lens and saying, okay, I'm, I'm a corporate athlete and on every role, every project, I need to think about how I can improve my game, how I can improve my skill sets, 
This might be getting a new certification, learning a new technology, becoming a better communicator, et cetera. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, uh, and it's pretty interesting. Like when you talk to young professionals and, and even you know folks who are you know middle of their career, everybody's trying to climb the ladder, oh, yeah. right? get ahead, get, get a bigger role, bigger organization, bigger responsibilities. Yeah. And one of the things that I talk to younger professionals about is like, not all lateral moves are bad moves. Hmm. Sometimes a lateral move might give you some perspective, some skill sets that you might have. It gives you a broader, stronger foundation that makes you even better equipped to be successful at the next role hmm. versus always going up. You may want to go across, broaden your thought process, your skill set, your perspective, and then move up. And so I, I talk, I talk to them a lot about that constant drive for bigger, more responsibility all the time. It's not always the best move. Hmm. That's really good insight. I think something that's not said enough to young professionals and not appreciated by a lot of leaders, it's not always about climbing the ladder. Just as important are you know, gaining new skills and, and new insights. My previous firm, which is in, in Nashville, InfoWorks, it had more of a flat organizational structure. So they were actually really good at this kind of skill building piece. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I think that's fantastic insight and uh, you know something that 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 I'll have to have to keep in mind in my career so the the professional world is realizing new normal a new way to work digitally how can organizations prepare their people for this new normal now what well, is the change leaders call and, and you and I we, we brought some change management training and we are part of the ACMP here in Nashville and well, let's talk about change management principles right we are aware that this is a pandemic and for most of us on the planet, none of us have experienced this before, right? And we're going through some massive changes economically, professionally, and culturally. And so if, you, if you're if you in this different environment and you acknowledge you're in this environment, then you have to figure out what you're going to do to build yourself up and the people around you to embrace what's what we're in and where we're going. Hmm. It's, I, I really believe that we're not, we're not going back to what the world was like just eight months ago, right? Yeah. We might get some stimulus of what it was eight months ago, but we're going to get a whole bunch of new things. And I, I'll cut that in, you know, just think about work from home. You and I, you're at the start, you were, you were used to doing some things virtually, mm -hmm. right? Sure. I've been in the tech industry for over 25 years. I've been doing virtual stuff for a long time. Yeah. But we have a lot of organizations out there that were old school, right? And for them, it had to be, you know, eight to five, nine to five in the office, it's in the cubicle where people could be observed and you could ensure productivity because <laughs> you can see them working, Yeah. right? Um, and so now you send people home, and then what I think a lot of organizations have found out, including a lot of my customers, they found that their people have been productive, if not more productive, hmm. in, in this pandemic. So so now what, right? How do you apply, you know, change management principles that way? You talk about ad car. Acknowledge the situation. Do you have the desire to change? Do you have the knowledge and skill set to change? And then how do we reinforce this new environment, this new ability or capability for that matter to to be more effective in what the world we're going to go forward in? And I think that's the thing every organization is going to struggle with because I don't think they're going back to what they have before. The history of the U.S., it can be argued, is a series of transformations and reimaginings based on our founding principles. Right now, we're in perhaps, you know, one of the maybe greatest phases of, of transformation that anybody's seen uh, 
during their lifetimes. So do you think it's important for an organization to acknowledge this potential transformation? And if so, how do they go about it? Well, I mean, you, you have to acknowledge it, right? It's just like anything else. If you don't acknowledge the situation that you're in, then it's almost impossible to move forward. And you wind up either going being stagnant and, and, and dying off or being in limbo, which is not a good place to be. So in order to do that, to seize any opportunities, you have to acknowledge that world you're in and then transform your environment, yourself, your people, your organization to be more successful in that new world. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Prime. It's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And it has a quote that I actually use in my signature. Change fixes the past. Transformation creates the future. So if organizations that are, are going to decide to transform, then they're going to have to look at the future they're trying to create or want to be a part of. And they're fundamentally put things in place that enable the transformation to get to that future. Right? Mm-hmm. If you go focus on the past, you can change some things, but you can't create that future. And I think that's the key for any organization as they go forward. How do they create the right people, the right mindset, the right structures in place to create the future that they envision for themselves, they envision for the world, they envision for their people, and then move forward towards that. So it seems like the the, the right move is definitely to to acknowledge what's going on. There are you know, some some leaders who are hesitant to address some of the racial tensions that you're seeing across the country. Because perhaps because they don't know how to address it. Maybe they're afraid they might not be taken the, the right way. What would you say to a leader of an organization who is in that position, they're, they're in that uncomfortable position where they, they really don't know how to address some, some of those kind of more human elements? Listen, learn, and lead. And right now, if you're, if you're not sure what to say or you're not sure how to navigate, you may just want to listen a whole lot. Right? Listen to your people, listen to the environment, listen to all the signals out there. Then learn from that, right? And then try to find your own voice. Find your own heart, your own soul in this. And then face whatever you, how you're going to lead going forward on what you found inside yourself. Do that listening and learning process. But it's not to go in and lead through the world and take it over. I think a lot of leaders can learn a ton of things right now that they, they've never learned before. Listen to your organization, listen to your culture, listen to your people, then find your voice and the way you can effectively lead going forward. That, that's extremely important. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is, you know, right now, a lot of the things that we're going through is because we've been silent. Hmm. Lots of folks have been silent. We've been silent about social injustice. We've been silent about economic inequalities. We've been silent about political discourse. And, and right now, that's how we got to these places. And we've let kind of the loudest extremes dictate the, the argument versus maybe some of the majority people just kind of coming back in and leaning into the conversation and dictating it the other way. And I think mm-hmm. that's something we just have to continue to evolve and work on. I was talking to someone the other day and they would describe the situation where they're at a family dinner. My uncle said something that they really, really opposed. And they didn't say anything. Hmm. Right? And I get it. You know, grandma sitting at the end of the table. You don't want grandma getting mad because you upset the table, start an argument. Yeah. You know, nobody <laughs> wants to be in that situation. Yeah. Right? But I actually believe that is the environment where we should speak up. Because that's the environment where you're loved. That's the, the environment where you're trusted. Hmm. That's the environment where people know your core. 
And if you speak up in that environment, you're more likely to be heard hmm. than if you do it on social media. You do it out in public with people who don't know you. Talk to people who are closest to you, who you really love and, and care about, who really love and care about you. And maybe you can make a change that way. And we have to be brave enough to, to stand up in that conversation. Now, I'm, I'm going to show my t-shirt. I don't know if you're going to have the video, but I really believe in this, right? Be brave enough to have a conversation that matters. Hmm. We have to find that brave. That's awesome. I, I especially like how you talked about leaders might first just want to listen and evaluate the landscape, evaluate how your peers, your employees are feeling in this time. And I think each of us probably has that person in our family who may have some opinions or beliefs that are overtly offensive. And if you're like me, I've avoided having those conversations for many of the reasons you mentioned. You, you bring up a, a valid point. If, if anybody is going to at least hear you out, it would be those people, you know, and it may not change their opinion, but at least you are bringing in other insights to the conversation and not validating their beliefs by silence. I, I think that was something that, that was really impactful that, that you, you brought up. It's not easy. Uh, and I, I would not profess that it will ever be easy. But as you know, it's crazy. It's when it's changed everybody. As a successful black executive, can you tell me what it's like to be the few among the many in the room? Just an interesting question. And it's been that way in pretty much my entire career. So I, I, I it, it's like you, you, you acknowledge it and you know it's there. You know, 25, 30 years it's been that way. So it's not abnormal for me to walk into a room and be the only uh, minority in the room or the only African-American male in the room. Hmm. Like it, it, it is very normal. So from that perspective, I don't feel anything that's happening different. But what I do think is different is now there are other people in the room asking the question, why am I the only one in the room, right? Or when we go to a, a company meeting and there's a thousand people leaders and there's six black people in the room out of thousands, right? Hmm. Leading thousands of people across your organization, people start to ask, why are there so few, right? And it, you know, and it can't, and I don't believe it's a lack of talent. I don't believe it's a lack of ability. I believe a lot of times it's the lack of insight and opportunity. And so now there are more people asking that question besides me in the room, which is where the difference occurs, right? Mm. Uh, minorities can't change this situation. If they could, it would have been changed already. The majority have to lean in and change this if they want it changed. Mm. That's pretty interesting because you, you're right. Now it's it's kind of top of mind on everybody's radar, especially if you are a large organization looking for for top talent, you want to make sure that your your talent starts to match the the demographics of the consumer, so you understand the consumer. That's the organization coming coming full circle and really acknowledging, hey, why why doesn't leadership, you know, why why does leadership all look the same? Why why does leadership, you know, why are, are they all male or all this or all that? But but it's it's it, you know it is difficult, like you like you said. Mm -hmm. Whether you're African American, whether you're female, and, and, and the, again, diversity and inclusion, we, you know, we talk about the things on the outside, the external things that we can see, but we also need to be mindful of some diversity and inclusion things for the things that are underneath, right? Hmm. People that might have physical disabilities, 
issues or the challenges that may not get ex- directly exposed. People who've had different backgrounds working in different countries that you might want to have that perspective in the room that you don't get. So I think we have to not only look at the top level of diversity inclusion, but we should also start looking at those underlying experiences and skill sets that might diversify the team and be more inclusive of getting more perspective. Uh, but I definitely wanted to address that question because it, it is it is a beautiful thing to see that it's becoming more and more a, a conversation at the senior leadership level across organizations, across every industry. Basically. Kind of acknowledgement that you're seeing, why aren't there more James Lakes in the room? You know, I mean, has that, has that had any, any personal impact on you at this time? Yeah, I, I think it, it, it may be hopeful that that question is being asked. And I, and, and in fact, I've had leaders ask me, you know, how do, how do we improve this? How do we make it better? How do we capture those perspectives? And I think that's where we can lean in. I think the younger generation also is going to force us to. These kids are, are, are looking at, at things slightly different. And I, I'll give you an example. As we were going through all of this, uh, the racial injustice conversation, whether we're talking about George Floyd, Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, all those things, you know, I was going and preparing to go to a protest with my oldest daughter who's 17. And, and as we were going, you know, she, she was talking and she said, Dad, I don't want to be like you. Hmm. And as a parent, that's the last thing you want to hear your child say. <laughs> so I immediately took offense to the statement that she doesn't want to be what's wrong with me, right? <laughs> what did I do? But then she, she clarified what she meant in that during the lead up all that and, and things, she said, I don't want to be, I don't want to be 50 years old and, and, and have, and, and have to do what I saw you do. I saw the, the style in your face, heard the pain in your voice when you're trying to explain this to me and my my sister Emma, who's 13, by the way. Hmm. And she said, I don't want to do this when I'm 50 with my kids. I don't want to feel that pain. I don't want to try to explain that style to them. So I'm going to lean in now and try to make a difference today and going forward. Because when I get 50, the world's not going to be this way. And, and so I do believe that all this conversation, all this this movement culturally, I'm hopeful that we'll see some major differences going forward. I may not live through it, but I do believe my children would, would see something different. Hmm. That's a really powerful story. Um, you know, th- thank you for sharing that with me and with everyone who's listening. And what a surreal conversation for you to need to have with your child in the year 2020. Most people can't even imagine what it would be like to have a conversation like that with your children. And, you know, I, I remember my mom having, you know, the quote unquote talk with me. And as you know, the talk is a little different than, than what other people think the talk is. The talk for a lot of minority communities and black communities is basically in regards to how to behave around police officers so you won't get shot. On top of all of the other worries of a, of a normal mother, you know, my mom has to worry about if I get pulled over and something goes wrong. And this is something that she still worries about to this day, despite the fact that went to two universities, have a master's degree, you know, she still worries about that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's, that's just something that I hope people 
when they listen to this that they that they really think about? Yeah, you know, and you mentioned to your mom, like my dad had a conversation with me. I know my grandfather had a conversation with my dad, and I'm pretty sure my great great grandfather had a conversation and all the way back. And it, there's no way to explain it to people if they've never lived through it. You can try to describe it, but I it, I remember the first time my dad had that conversation. I didn't quite get it hmm. until I got about eight years old. Um, and growing up in Detroit, you see a lot of stuff. Well, the first time I saw a group of police officers jump out of cars and start beating people, that's when I realized what he was talking about. Okay. Uh, and, and, and so you're like, you, you could be doing nothing wrong, but you, the, or the worst could be assumed of you. And all of a sudden you're in a life threatening situation for very tiny things from a speeding ticket to a tail light being out, right? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 when I have a visceral reaction every time, every time I see blue lights in my rear view. Because mm-hmm. I'm scared I'm going to meet the wrong person the wrong day, and I'm a six foot four, two hundred fifty pound black man, and I look scary. Uh, that's all. That's all it takes. That's all the justification to, to some that, that feel it's needed. And I, it, and then the, you know the time change becomes things like, hey, uh, James was aggressive. He's a big guy, or uh, he didn't comply. Um, and the only people who would know or, or question that would be people like you, people who know me, mm-hmm. right? Know not even tempered. Know that. I'm a decent man and, and a decent guy. Like they, you would question it, but the rest of the world and country may not because they don't know me. Mm-hmm. And it should not come down to you personally knowing me to be able to empathize with what might have happened or who I was, or who I may be. Exactly. That yeah, you know that's a heavy conversation. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it is what it is. But but it's but it's important. It's important. So kind of kind of going back to some of your your prior experience from. Playing professional basketball overseas, what what do what do you think organizations can learn from sports? You hear a lot about the next man up mantra, next game up, next season. Athletes don't get to stay in the same place very long because the game is still moving. New talent is coming in all the time. There's somebody younger, faster, stronger, more talented coming <laughs> at you all the time. You know, unless you're the elite of the elite. The top over one percent of any sport, you could be bypassed relatively quickly. So constant improvement is the game. Hmm. I have to continue to improve and bring value. Because the day I stop, somebody's taking my minutes, then somebody's taking my job, and then somebody's <laughs> taking my salary. Yeah, right, as athletes. <laughs> so, and so when you when you talk when you take that to a professional or a corporate environment or a small business environment. There has to be this continuous drive to improve, hmm. to enhance skills, to get better. And status quo is not that, right? So hmm. I, I, I'm surprised sometimes when I see organizations that want to hold on to so much status quo, knowing that to be successful, it's been shown over and over again, constant improvement is a key to success, hmm. right? So then why, why do we embrace status quo so so, so, so stringently in corporate environments is kind of a surprising thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree. And I think that, um, that would be great for most or more organizations, especially governmental organizations to adopt that mindset. I won't name any specific governmental entities, but I worked for some governmental agencies in the past. And I think being happy with the status quo and, and being comfortable is, is the norm in many 
government agencies. You know, you look at utilities, government, many, many corporations, you, you get to a point, people, they, they kind of start coasting. Well, you know, I agree with that 100%. I think if you take a, you know, another sports strategy, losing franchises, and besides, I'm not going to name a couple of teams that are always in this boat, but <laughs> I, will, I will make some, some, some hands out there mad, but they know who they are. <laughs> um, but typically, if, if an organization is losing, like you, you very rarely see a team that missed the playoff 20 years in a row not try to do something to change the game to get back. Yep. Right? They're, they're continuously trying to do that, whether that be optimize who they picked as the first pick to to revamp the franchise and give it some new energy and, and focus. Maybe they cut a high-priced player and then get a couple of better players and improve three positions versus only one position. They're, they're doing that all the time, trying to find a way to get better. And I think that continuous effort does have to be something that or, governmental organizations should be trying to do. Corporate organizations, schools, hospitals, everyone should be in that. And then we as individuals should be trying to do the same. And if, if we're doing that, then I do believe more often than not, you know, my mother has the saying, shoot for the moon and land among the stars. It's not mm. a bad place to be. Well, maybe you don't get all the way to the moon, but the stars are not that bad. And so <laughs> that constant improvement maybe gets you into consistently landing among the stars. Nice. Are, are there any specific tips that you can give leaders during this time to try to get their organizations into maybe more of that, that mindset, that continual constant learning, growth mindset, continual improvement type of mindset. We talked a little bit earlier about listening, learning, and leading, but also get into the concepts of managing, leading, and coaching. And I think hmm. we, we have to have more conversations as leaders about those three things because they're, they're vastly different. And the skill set and tools you use in each one of those buckets is vastly different. For example, when you're managing something, you're managing to an outcome, a timeline. And typically, someone who's managing something, that's about them. They're trying to get a specific thing right now from this individual, and it's about them and their needs. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is where the terms like micromanagement comes from. That's not about your employee. That's about something you want as their manager <laughs> right now in a certain way, in a certain time frame. So you can get it done, mm. right? When you're leading something, that's a two-way street. That's a give and take scenario. I've got to give you things that inspire you, that encourage you, uh, and, and give you an interest in following my leadership, right? And that that, that has to be there, right? So it's, it's, it's a two-way street. We're both in it when we're leading because I have to lead and you have to follow and, and we have to figure out how we do that effectively together. But there has to be a little bit of give and take. Mm. When you're coaching, though, it's never about you. It's always about the other individual because they're the ones playing. They're the ones performing. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to coach them to be the most effective, valuable, and consistent resource they can be more often than not being that. So if you think about, you know, basketball coaches, they don't shoot. They don't pass. They don't dribble. They don't play defense. What they're trying to do is tap into that individual player to help and put them in a situation where they consistently can perform at a high level. Mm. That's what you're trying to do in coaching. And so those managing, leading, coaching are three different things, three different perspectives. And when you're doing them, you have to understand it, recognize it, and apply the appropriate skills, tool sets, 
questions, conversations to it to be effective in all three of those buckets. And, you know, I'm practicing that craft all the time, trying to recognize it. And I'm not saying it's easy at all, but just like anything else, when you're trying to hone your craft, it's not supposed to be easy. <laughs> it's supposed to be, it's a journey. It's work. It's effort. You have to lean into it and try to get better at those three buckets and understand where you are in the process. Because you know, in, in a, I could be in a, a, a managing, leading, coaching conversation all in the same, same person in 20 minutes. And if I don't recognize the transitions, then I, I could be ineffective because I didn't use the right skill sets oh, wow. when I should have used them. I know leaders who have simply managed. I've, I've had leaders that have simply managed. They didn't know how to inspire others to action. They didn't know how to how to coach effectively to, to really get out of, of the bubble of them. And I think it's hindered them quite a bit in their effectiveness. And it sounds like what you're saying is to be well-rounded, to be a competent leader, you have to be able to navigate each one of those skill sets effectively and be able to, to distinguish when to employ those skill sets. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. And I, like I said, it's, it's hard. It is really hard. Because you have to step out of yourself and be willing to evaluate in real time. Not the most easiest thing to do. I like right now. I struggle making that, doing that with my own kids, my two daughters. We <laughs> talked about the earlier in this conversation. Now there might be some differences emotionally when you're dealing with teenage girls, but you know, for me trying to figure out when I'm managing them through something to get them to clean their room or finish their homework or do some chores around the house, to leading them as part of the family, saying, "Hey." The family, this is our goal this year, or this is what we're trying to accomplish. Here's your role in it. I need you to, I need to lead you through it. I need you to follow, and I need to inspire you to help us, me and your mom or the family, get to this outcome. And then when I'm coaching them, which is the hardest thing, I, I coach basketball, I coach my daughter mm. a little bit, and I, I, I have to always remind myself, I'm coaching, I'm not her dad, and sometimes even when I'm coaching her, I need to just be dad and not coach. And, and trying to figure that out all the time is not that easy. But it's the same thing with the people you lead at work, right? You, you have to find those different things, those nuances to help that person get the most out of themselves, which is to the benefit of the organization that you're part of. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think it takes pretty high EQ to be able to, to be able to do that. Managing, leading, coaching. We, we went over those things. In, in detail in graduate school, but practice is is often very different than theory. Yeah. Practice is, is is generally much more complex than than theory. Really curious. What what do you enjoy doing in in your in your free time? I know you have some vacation properties in Greece. I mean, what what what's that all about? This journey started about eight years ago. My wife and I we owned three two villas and a condo on an island called Noxus. Which is in the clay regions of the Aegean near, you know, the it's most famous cousins are Mykonos and Santorini. And Noctis is, is in sort of, you know, in the middle of them. And it's the largest of the three. And half of the island is dedicated to farming, construction materials, and, and basically providing for Mykonos and Santorini. The other half of the island is tourism. And so it's a beautiful island. It's got some amazing agriculture, historic elements to it. And, they're just phenomenal. I, I love it in the Greek eyes. I've been going there for about 20 plus years, as is my wife. And this is beautiful. The people are great. The food's great. And I always say to the first time, if you can't relax in the Greek islands, then you can't relax. <laughs> like it, 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 it will 
if, if that can't put you at ease, I don't know. You, you better see a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it is just a wonderful environment to be in. So we really enjoy that. You know, then, you know, I still coach a little bit of basketball. Mostly now I just work with my daughter. So that's a lot of fun, just watching kids develop and grow because there's, there's part of that journey as well. I, I have conversations with parents all the time that are so obsessed with winning that they forget that their kids are developing. They're, they're developing teamwork skills. They're developing sacrifice skills. They're learning how to focus. They're learning how to collaborate. They're learning how to communicate. It's not just putting the ball in the back. It's a whole lot of other things that they're picking up from any sport, for that matter. But in basketball, I just think it's a special thing to watch kids develop in different ways. And not just physically, but mentally and emotionally, it's pretty good stuff. So I enjoy that. And then I read a lot. You and I talked about this previously, but I think you know, I read about 40 books a year. Uh, some of them are on life, some of them are on leadership. Some of them are just fun to read. Like, uh, started reading, and I'm actually, I just completed it, the Wisnar series from Kobe Bryant. Hmm. Um, phenomenally well done. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Kobe fan, I'm a Lakers fan, so sad that I've lost him and his beautiful daughter. Yeah. But reading the book kind of, you know, felt like I, I was picking up something from Kobe and, hmm. and part of his own journey. Yeah. And the book is about these, this, this team of boys who are playing basketball. And they're being coached by this wizard, right? <laughs> and all about perspective. So these six, seven players of this team, it describes the exact same situation from all of the players' perspective. So hmm. imagine we go into a meeting, presentation is given, a conversation is had, and then there's six of us in a room. And I guarantee you, all six of us will take something different out of that conversation. Sure. Right. And it talks about that perspective. And then how do you capture those perspectives so that as a whole, the whole unit gets better and smarter at the same time? Mm. So this is where inclusion comes in, diversity, taking the time to see if you can get as many of those perspectives on the table while you're in the moment versus only getting those perspectives post moment. Right. And and that's what I took out of, out of reading the book that he's talking about how coaches and players could probably do a better job of capturing the perspectives of their teammates, hmm. their colleagues, their, their subordinates, their, the leaders above them while you're in the moment. And, and you see that with football teams. They come off the field and they debrief what they just see and they do it immediately. They don't do it the next day anymore. They do yeah. it by their lives. We should probably do that more often in the corporate world. Hmm. Agreed. I, I think having the emotional intelligence to understand that your perception of a problem is not the only one, it's not the only perception, and having the empathy to be open to different perspectives is an ability that you can really use in any profession. And, and ultimately, the, the result of getting those different perspectives will likely be a better solution. I want to ask you one final question, and this question is a curveball. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's a question I ask everyone. If you could be any animal, what animal would you be and why? Mm, it's a tough one. If I had to choose, I think I'd, I'd be a lion. You know, when I think about lions, right, they're, they're strong, they're powerful, they're purposeful in everything they do. But at the same time, they're very cognizant of their environment. And they don't waste a whole lot of energy, right? They only respond to the things they have to respond to. Mm-hmm. They let 
the, the other team members, the Cubs, the Lionesses respond to all kinds of threats. And they only stand up and, and roar or do when they absolutely have to. Right? <laughs> and so, you know, we, we run really hard every day. And sometimes I, I wonder, could I be more effective and purposeful in some of the things that I get involved in versus leaving some things on that don't mm. really need me? But I wanted to get pulled into or leaning in on. So I'm practicing that thing, trying to be very mindful of where my time, my energy and focus goes to optimal impact. And that's, I think that's the line. Awesome. I really love that question because the characteristics that people kind of strive towards, they tend to, to match up with what they perceive in their, in their animal picks. Great. So you asked me, and I get to throw the curveball back. What yeah. would you be? Okay. So I think I'd, I'd probably be a wolf, and I think the reason I'd be a wolf, wolf? yeah, yeah, so I think I, the reason I'd be a wolf is I appreciate that the wolf gets worked on a collaborative way, you know, they, they understand how to work in teams, they, they know how to get stuff done, and I like the community, you know, that comes with the pack, and so so yeah, I think I think probably a wolf, but a dire wolf, not just a wolf, a dire wolf, and I don't know if you've seen Game of Thrones, but... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Dire wolves is uh that that's where it's at. That's 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 a real wolf. That's a real wolf. <laughs> <laughs> that's a real wolf. All the other wolves are fake. That's a real wolf. That's a real wolf right there. Dire wolf. <laughs> uh, well, James, that, I love that. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that about wraps it up. I, I appreciate you taking some time with me today. I hope our listeners had as great a time as I did listening to your thoughts and your fantastic insights and. I just want to thank you so much for your time. Well, now I want to thank you for doing this. Um, I listened to the first podcast, thought it was phenomenal. And I think there's a lot of, you know, listening and learning going on around the globe and, and especially with leaders trying to navigate this new environment that we're operating in. And so, you know, the fact that you're doing this means that we all get an opportunity to pick up a nugget here and there for one another and hopefully allows us to become better leaders in this time. And help us move our, our organizations, the country, our, our lives forward in, in a very constructive way. So thank you for doing this. I'm looking forward to picking up more nuggets from your future guests. And <laughs> hey, man, just keep grinding, keep doing it. This is good stuff, folks. Awesome. Thank you again, James. Take care. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. first met James Lakes while interning on the Association of Change Management Professionals Board in Tennessee. I later went on to serve as a board member with James on that same board. Aside from being impressed by his unique story, a professional sports athlete turned corporate athlete, I was struck by how holistically he looks at transformation. James looks at transformation with empathy. And when you look at transformation through the lens of empathy, you begin to realize that someone's experience, even if it doesn't match your own, does not make it any less true or relevant. And I think right now especially, we can learn a lot from his approach as a country. Whether that means you drape yourself in the flag, stand for the flag, or kneel for the flag in protest, America is unique in the fact where those differing expressions are not mutually exclusive. Each one of those Americans are expressing themselves in a uniquely American way, in a way that makes one no less or no more patriotic than the other. 
if each one of us would stop talking and really, truly start listening to each other's stories to internalize another's experience, we might be able to confront the cognitive dissonance that lies at the heart of each and every one of us. Then maybe we could continue this great experiment we call the United States together with differing views, but as one nation.